0: What if everything you thought of, health and wellness, suddenly changed due to a hidden breathing problem that you are unaware of that affects every system in your body? Improper breathing habits are often overlooked in medicine. I'm Dr. Jenny from the Hobson Institute, and this is The Breathing Lab. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much. I am so excited to introduce to you our new um, podcast interviewee, Dan Hogelum. Uh, He is a physical therapist, has been working as a physical therapist for the past 25 years and is a PRI certified therapist since 2012. That's the Postural Restoration Institute um, that he's certified through. And um, he is also an instructor of this this type of treatment um, and philosophy that we're going to go into today. He's out he works out of Evanston, Illinois, and um, he also works with another PRI therapist in in that practice. So thank you so much, Dan. Thank you for being here.
1: Well, thanks, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
0: Yes, I, you know, Dan and I um, were fellow PTs, so we we talk chop every time I come, and I actually bring um, my kids to Dan um, for this postural restoration treatment and. I've been pretty impressed. I have to say, uh, you know, my kids, like any other kid, deals with too much, probably too much screen time and posture related to that screen time and breathing problems related to that screen time. I think we're all um, need to be more active, but um, I, I felt like it's been a very effective treatment and I wanted to share it to our group here. Um, And just to educate people more on what is out there for posture and breathing. Um, I
1: I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Yeah.
0: So Dan, um, you know, for the past year, a little less than a year that we've been working together. um, What I see the Posture Restoration Institute is, is um, you know, I, I, I see both my children and myself, we all have different postures and it seems that, our way of breathing kind of shapes the the spine or gives us those curves. Some of them that are proper curves and some of them that are, you know, either too extended, like too straight or too, too kyphotic or too hunched. And we tend to kind of adapt our bodies around breathing in that way. And we either stiffen, in certain positions, so you don't end up using all of your rib cage and it creates a lower shoulder or maybe a lower hip on one side. But um, this is my take and you can correct me when I'm done. Like what I see is that we, Postural Restoration Institute, that philosophy, you go through a set of tests at the hips, at the shoulders, at the neck, that either your body is in good alignment and all the tests are negative or they're not, they're they're positive tests, you don't pass them. And it's because you're locked up in a certain area, maybe in your shoulder blade area or your scapular area or your neck area and there's specific exercises to kind of restore the natural curves of the spine and to breathe in the places that we don't necessarily breathe well in, to realign the spine that's kind of, and and, it, and it's a little bizarre because there's some weird exhaling going on. You breathe in yeah. silently through your nose and then you make a loud ah, type of exhale, which yeah. is kind of a weird thing, but it, I think it really is part of why it works. So correct me if I'm wrong, Dan.
1: No, I mean, that was, that was really well done. I mean, it was largely correct. So yes, there's because there's an underpinning underneath all of this that the, the human body is manufactured asymmetrically and that asymmetry is actually a gift. And it, it really is something that um, it allows the body to, to be more right oriented. So the pelvic, the sacrum has the tendency to be more oriented and turned to the right. The center of mass has a tendency to more, be more shifted to the right. Um, as a result, yeah, the, that, that, that fosters um, uh, an easier ability to get air into certain regions of the lung. And as a result, certain regions of the rib cage, certain parts of the rib cage is more mobile than others. And so, the people, there are some people who really have an easier time of, of navigating and figuring out how to then get to the left side of their body. And some people then really struggle with that concept. And so, then that, then that comes with the question isn't are you going to get on your left leg? The question becomes how, and that how is different for every person. And that's where the testing comes in is that is looking at these tests through the lens of this human asymmetry. It then changes the expectation of the test. And and like all the tests that, that we've done either with your kids or with you, they're regular tests. Like you've seen the tests before. And we've been taught the test in a clinical educational didactic scenario, but, how we're in and the interpretation of the test isn't different it's just we're looking at it starting with the lens of there's is a human asymmetry it is a big deal it does matter <coughs> excuse me and you have to account for it and um, that's one of the main underpinnings of PRI is is like you can google human asymmetry like the human body is made asymmetrically and um P- posture restoration is really the the only Um, entity that's really looking at how is the body asymmetrical? How does it matter? How does it relate to function? How does it relate to musculoskeletal performance, respiratory performance, um, digestive performance, autonomic nervous system performance, um, joint health? I mean, there's a lot of potential ramifications for not being able to recognize and or manage Um, asymmetry all the way up into the mandible, teeth, tongue, upper airway, skull, cranium, eyes. Um, Yeah, so that's what we're kind of looking at is is how well does your body go and shift correctly left and right? That's what the tests tell us. And so then we have this, there's a a whole battery of of activities that we can do both manually and non-manually to be able to help encourage the rib cage or the pelvis or the femur or the scapula or the humerus or the neck wherever the bigger problem lies, to be able to get into a, a position that allows the body to fully shift from the right side and fully shift to the left side and then fully back to the right side, because that oscillation of going side to side, front to back, ab and adduction, internal rotation, that oscillation and how the body flows and moves is really where really kind of our goal is, is to make sure the body has the ability to to do and, and get into all those fact, uh, positions and functions on the left and right side and a lot of that comes back down to airflow and where the air enters your body, which lung, what part of the lung. As a result, if the, if the lung doesn't inflate, that means the ribcage on the outside doesn't really have to move. Right. And so if you have a part of your ribcage that doesn't move well, then that's going to ne- negatively influence both the pelvis underneath it and the, and the cervical spine above it and so that's yeah that's basically what we're looking at to be able to to make sure we can optimize airflow and then also make sure that if there is a an overuse of the of the left hip capsule and that becomes over lengthened over stretched out let's give you some some management strategies for that if you've got a impingement in your scapula let's give us a management strategy for that if you've got a hypermobility in your OA joint let's get you some manage some strategies to manage that so that's the other thing that I value a lot about PRI is it really does, it gives us the opportunity to, to manage and fix and rectify some some pathological instabilities should they show up as well. But yeah, that's that, there in a I, nutshell.
0: I, I so appreciate that. And um, you know, what I wanted to ask you coming from a PRI standpoint, you know, we we've been talking about breathing. Breathing's kind of my specialty w- from your po- point of view. What is proper breathing? Like what happens to the body during proper breathing when, when everything's working, right? What should we want to, to do in our bodies?
1: Okay. So it, <clears throat> a, in a broad sense, in order for you to breathe correctly and we're talking, the breathe credit we're going to talk about is, is, primarily at rest as opposed to like how you breathe when you're working out or running or exercising. That is a all hands on deck. The brain doesn't really care how you get air in, use your neck, use your lats, use your hip flexors, whatever. Cause your heart rate is high. Your respiration rate is high. You need to get more oxygen in. So it's mouth breathing, whatever, get your job done, get oxygen in. So we're not talking about that. We're talking about when the, when the workout is over, you're done exercising. And your system is trying to get into a more parasympathetic, calm state. Okay. Well, what needs to happen in order for the diaphragm then to be the primary respiratory tool in that non workout endeavor, in yeah. order for the diaphragm to be the primary respiratory tool, you have to have two things happen. One is you have to have the rib cage move, two, during air leaving your body. So it's not just air leaving your body. It, air has to come out of your body, but your rib cage has to move in that process. So what should happen is, as you exhale, your rib cage moves into internal rotation. Now that's a big deal because as the rib cage moves down into internal rotation, that's helped squeeze the air out of the lungs. And so that's part of the reason why, when when you exhale from a PRI standpoint, we're trying to have there be uh, a yeah. sound that's made. Yeah because what that sound does is allows the ribcage to internally rotate more, allows the vocal cords to vibrate, which we need to have happen to be able to inhibit the anterior neck. Well, right. that's a big deal because if your anterior neck is part of your at rest breathing team, that anterior neck is going to elevate your ribcage. Well, then that's not an exhale, that's an inhale. So as you get that ribcage to internally rotate, which then helps compress the lung tissue, to get the air to come out of the lungs, so you have to have both ribcage movement with air leaving your body. What that does then is, is causes the diaphragm, which is on the bottom of the rib cage above your organs, that rib cage moves into internal rotation, comes down and properly domes the diaphragm. Well, you can't inhale with your diaphragm unless it's in a domed shape first. Well, the only way you can get to that is if air left your body and your ribcage moved. So the first thing that we're interested in is really, can you exhale, and can you get your rib cage to move down and back? So it's not just down; it's down and retraction. And the only muscle that can take your rib cage and pull it down towards the floor and retract it backwards—the only muscle that can do that—is your internal obliques. Okay. So step yeah. one is: can you use your internal internal obliques to exhale you correctly? Step one. Step two then is. Can you not let your internal obliques just completely fall apart as you take your next inhale in? Now, research will tell you that a diaphragm-based inhalation strategy is only going to be six to eight breaths a minute, maybe 10 if you're unlucky. But six to eight is a diaphragm breathing strategy. That's how the diaphragm is hardwired from the vagus and phrenic nerve from the brain. So if you're breathing 12 to 13 breaths a minute, the chances of it being diaphragm breathing is not very good at rest. So you have to get that exhale. You then have to put your diaphragm in the right position. The inhale then, because now we're just at rest here. We're just breathing. The inhale should not be fast and loud. It shouldn't be a really reflexive inhale because that's not your diaphragm anyway. So the diaphragm is just a casual breath in that really should be relatively silent and not overly aggressive. So the diaphragm can then descend and drop and draw air into your lungs in a three-dimensional scenario, elevation, sideways, front to back, because the only only way you can get air into three-dimensional lung rib cage expansion is your diaphragm. Well, the only way your diaphragm can do that is if it was in the proper position. The only way that happens is an exhale with your internal obliques to compress the air out of your lungs. So we're starting at the beginning and kind of walking our way forward because belly breathing is not diaphragm breathing. So if, when you take a breath, in, yeah, have,
0: explain that because that, okay. that I mean, a lot of people think that they just breathe down there and they see their belly expanding, contracting that that's my diaphragmatic breathing.
1: Totally. So, uh, I mean, 25 <laughs> years ago, PT school, I was taught diaphragm breathing was belly breathing. That's what I was taught in school. So it's, it's kind, it's like a bastardized diaphragm breathing. It's not, it's not exactly diaphragm breathing, but so when you're in a, Inhaled state, and your rib cage is in an inflated position because you haven't exhaled correctly, and your rib cage stays in this hyperinflation state. And you're breathing from here. Okay. First of all, it's not diaphragm breathing, that is accessory breathing. You have to use your neck, your lats, your back, your hip flexors, whatever, your gastroc, your upper traps, they can all help you get air in. Okay. Anything that helps put your rib cage into this elevated state or thoracic extension can help you get air in if you need to. Okay, So in that position, your diaphragm is now flat because you've already inhaled. Your rib cage is already inflated. Therefore, your diaphragm is flat. Your diaphragm is now done. It's flat. Now, you can't use your diaphragm to breathe in, but you're still going to breathe in because you don't know how to breathe correctly. What happens is this flat diaphragm now has to get flatter. It exerts pressure downward into the organs. So then as your diaphragm is trying to get air in from a flat position, it's thrusting down into your organs, pushing your organs forward, that's belly breathing. So in a just non-correct sense, is belly breathing technically diaphragm breathing? Technically, sure. But you're using your diaphragm completely wrong. Yeah. Because in that position, as you're taking a flat diaphragm and making it flatter, the diaphragm actually has two jobs in life. One is to breathe in for you. Two, it's a spinal stabilizer. And if you use it wrong, a spinal rotator. Okay, that's where a lot of people have this mid-back tightness all the time because their diaphragm is totally flat and steering their spine side to side. not its job, but it can okay. if you need it to, but it's not supposed to do that. Well, a flat diaphragm that is only getting flatter is really taking your spine and taking your spine and pulling it even more forward into extension. So now you're trying to inhale in the absence of diaphragm activity by pulling your spine forward, creating more extension and turning on your hip flexors more and more. And now I've got, oh my gosh, you got this hip flexor tightness. Well, you can't stretch hip flexor tightness if your rib cage is in the wrong position. The easiest way to shut off a hip flexor is to get your rib cage to move. So in, in the last, so I got, I started taking PRI courses in 2004 and, and really started getting into it in 2006. I haven't stretched out, stretched out a hamstring or hip flexor since then. What is that? 17 years.
0: That's what, that, that's an interesting thing. Cause we go through, um, we always test straight leg raise, you know, sure. on your back, you range, if you get close to 90, we think good. Well, yeah. there's little ones like my son that, you know, y- he, he wants to be stretched all the time because he feels yeah. tight in his body, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, you say that it's not good to stretch. It's, that means there's something going on there, right? that your body's yeah. not in alignment and that you right. feel tight, but you right. should not feel like you need to stretch all the time. Could right. you elaborate on that?
1: Sure. So the, the, the feeling of I need to stretch all the time is a sign of dysfunction. Now there's plenty of research out there and I'm talking gobs of research that'll sh- that'll say how that stretching really doesn't do what we think it does. Okay, and, and everything I'm gonna say right now, you can find it in any textbook. This is not even, this isn't PRI, this is basic muscle physiology. So there are two systems in every muscle, muscle spindles and Golgi tendon organs, GTOs, that they're designed to detect length, whether it's fast or quick, they're designed to detect the length of a muscle. Okay, so when you perceive tension in a muscle, it's usually for two reasons. It's because the muscle is already too long, and so your muscle spindles and, and GTOs, more of more the muscle spindles, are heightened. They're like, I detect length. I, my, these two bones are moving further apart. I'm getting longer. I'm detecting length. I'm getting tight, because that rubber band of the muscle is getting longer and longer. You take a rubber band and do this, it's tight. Yeah, yeah. So we've been misinformed, in my opinion. We've been misinformed that when you feel tight, we've been told to stretch a muscle. If you feel tight, that muscle is usually already too long. Yeah. in version number two is like the hip flexor. So that's the hamstring. A lot of times the hamstring will look tight because the pelvis is in an anterior pelvic tilt.
0: That's the right. The hamstring
1: is in a lengthened position. So you take a long hamstring and then test its length. It's gonna stop prematurely. You've got 45, 60 degrees of yeah. graze. Oh, your hamstring is too tight. No, it's already too long. Right. There's really no no point stretching it because it's it's already hyper-lengthened to begin with. All you do is further shut off your hamstring. And number two, like the hip flexor is a really good example. In that position where you have that anterior pelvic tilt, the psoas is now engaged. It's now working because it's leveraged in a shortened state. So what happens then your hamstring is lengthened, which becomes pseudo-inhibited. You've got glutes that are already in a shortened state. You can't really use them very well. So the psoas becomes your overactive core stabilizer and gait mechanic facilitator. So now the psoas is being overworked. But as far as the brain's concerned, if the psoas shuts off, we're in trouble. Like we're in real trouble here. So psoas, you don't really get the day off. You have to work for us all the time. So that means you can try to lengthen that muscle because it is legitimately on the shortened end of the spectrum. That's true. But you can try to lengthen it all you want to, but as long as the position of the pelvis and spine don't change, and all you're doing is you're trying to do femur extension. Right. And the position of the pelvis and spine don't change. Remember, the psoas attaches to the lumbar spine.
0: Right, correct.
1: Well, if that relationship doesn't ever change, all that, all that the only message that the psoas is getting is work, 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 work. Now you're trying to take the femur to go into extension. Well, it's not going to work because the message that the the system is still getting is so as activity, so as activity, so as activity. And so for for the people who then do somehow get increased extension through their femur, it's not because their psoas stopped working. It's because you hyper lengthened the capsule of your hip.
0: Right. No, and you're making a that. Good
1: thing. No, so you're making it more unstable.
0: Exactly. So it, th- that was one thing I remember right in the beginning when I brought in my children, um, Isabella, you, you had, it's like every, it, it. correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of people have their rib cage high. A lot a of lot. them, a lot of people a breathe up in their chest and their neck. And, and, and me, me included, I've realized I've, I've have to lower and use these obliques to really get, get your rib cage to lower. Um, But my daughter in one session, her lumbar spine has been pretty neutral where she's always been kind of my hypermobile girl, really loose jointed and, and like forward head, rounded shoulders, you know, tummy sticking out, arched back, hyperextended knees. and, <clears throat> in that one exercise where you're on your back, knees bent, you're kind of engaging your lower belly, you're engaging your hamstrings, you're kind of digging your heels into the, t- into the floor, and you're breathing with your arms kind of going overhead with a yeah. silent inhale in and that, that strange exhale where you're, <sighs> that, yeah, yeah, that, I, that I, lowering yeah. of the rib cage as you raise the arms she's been a pretty stable pelvis where she's not arched her back. Yeah. So, and and I remember you saying to me before, like the ones that slouch are the easier ones, the ones that are more like erect. And I'm more of a straight, you know, my son and I kind of have more of a, a, a straighter back. And we, I always thought, oh gosh, he looks pretty straight. He looks like his head is on his neck. Whereas my daughter is a little more forward. You think that that would be more correct? Can you yeah. explain what what you see in patients around that posture and how sure. how why is that difficult and why is that not good?
1: Yeah. So, and I, this is one. This is a question I had in PT school that no one was really able to answer for me. And, and this is and until I got to PRI, this is then I got my questions answered. But <laughs> like no one will argue that looking from the side, no one will argue that a Uh, an S-curve to your spine when looking from the side is normal. Like no one's going to argue that 30 degrees of cervical lordosis where your neck kind of curves forward. No one's going to argue that's neutral. That's research-based fact. That's where the facet joints sit. You need to have an anterior curve to your neck. No one's going to argue that. No one's going to argue that your thoracic spine needs to curve backwards 30 to 40 degrees because a 30 to 40 degree kyphotic curve of your thoracic spine is neutral. Look up in a textbook this is not um this is not coming from me this is coming from 40 50 years of right of research of what the the position of the spine sits in in neutral so the 30 degrees of your lumbar lordosis is neutral and so your pelvis is to your sacrum's tipped forward 30 degrees your sit your pelvis is angled that way so your asis and psis the bony points of your pelvis are lined up yeah they're even no one's gonna argue that position is considered neutral no one's gonna argue that that's well research based for 40 50 years okay Then my question is, why, why if we're going to have somebody sit with good posture, do we have them sit with a straight up back and push their rib cage forward? Because now they've lost their 30 to 40 degrees of thoracic kyphosis. Their neck is now straight with no anterior curve of their neck, and they've increased the, their lumbar lordosis. That's not neutral. Like We, we know what neutral is. But we ask people to sit and stand with rail rods straight, completely flat backs, and we call that neutral. No, that's a conflict from what we know is true and what we think is true. And to me, that is the, that's a huge problem because the more you ask somebody to sit up straight and stand up straight and get their back straight, you're now asking them to not observe what we know beyond any shadow of doubt, what is normal spinal position? And the only way you be able to get, not the only way, the best way, the most efficient way to be able to get your rib cage and your thoracic spine and your lumbar spine and your thoracic spine and your cervical spine into those normal 30, 30 to 40, 30 curves is if your rib cage goes into ah, internal rotation and retraction. That's what gets those curves neutral. Now, do you stay there forever? No, but you have to be able to get out of it. So I'll take somebody who looks like they have a lot of slumpy thoracic kyphosis. That's, a, that's way easier to fix than somebody who is really up and rigid for, for a couple reasons. One, that extension power, your brain loves the security of being in that extended posture, but it's a huge detriment to the entire system because as long as you're in that extended state, every joint is on alert. Well, that's hard to be parasympathetic, to be rest and digest if you're constantly if your skeleton is constantly in fight or flight that's extension well then you can't use your diaphragm and you can't get your ribcage to move correctly and your and your rib cage just becomes this immovable rigid brick now it's, it's treatable obviously it's very treatable but i'll take the the person who is more slumpy i can that's that's just introducing them to be like hey let's just dial that back a little bit to get you closer to neutral let's show your hamstrings are this gets you to breathe through your rib cage, into through your diaphragm look better and we're good to go. That's really not that difficult to treat. But now here's the other thing, just kind of dovetailing into yeah. what is actually thoracic kyphosis? What is detrimental thoracic kyphosis? Because people are like, oh, I've got a lot of kyphosis. No, you don't. Okay. What you have is a focal flexed segment. And that usually happens in the T4 region, not all the time, but usually T4 region. So what you have is a flat thoracic spine yep. and a flat upper thoracic spine and you have a hinge you have a hinge yep. at t4 that's not kyphosis that's focal flexion thoracic kyphosis is defined this is not my definition thoracic kyphosis is defined as a <clears throat> thoracic curve from t1 to t12 with the apex of that curve being t8 in a sequential non non apex curve, the apex of which being in, around that T8 segment. Now that's a big deal because T8 is the top of your diaphragm and T8 is the most mobile spinal segment in all directions. Now there's some segments that are better in flexion extension. There's some segments better in rotation, but if you take the, con- the combined motion of the T8 segment in all directions, it moves better than every other segment from top to bottom. So that's a segment you need to have the most freedom of motion. Well, the only way you get that freedom is if T8 goes backwards. How do you do that? Ribcage interrotation and retraction, which conveniently domes the diaphragm up to T8 to create this torsional top of the diaphragm rotational segment above which you get rotation, below which you get frontal plane activity. So these are all mechanics that are well-vetted, well-documented osteopathically, research-based, Franken and Nordine. Um, there's a lot of researchers that have vetted all this out for the last 30, 40, 50 years, in some cases, 100 years, and all PRI is doing is just saying, let's do that, as opposed to, anecdotally, it looks like that's really good posture. Well, let's test you for it. Let's actually actually do what the researchers have told us to do for the last 50 years and apply those concepts, Um, and so that's the other reason why I really appreciate what PRI does, because I have I've been doing physical therapy for a long time. The reason why I continue to come back to posture restoration is for me, I have not seen, I've, I've seen results with posture restoration that I can't get otherwise. So most of my clientele are, I see a lot of physical therapists to be completely honest, but it's people who have seen three, five, 10, 12, 40 in some cases, other practitioners, and I've got no results, and in a very short period of time, and, and short period of time is relative, right, so if you've been dealing with something for 30 years, six months is a short period of time, right, to be able to change how the body moves, and get them in a position where instead of having 40 years of back pain, they have no back pain, and I don't really use modalities, I don't really use ultrasound, heat or cold, it's reshaping how the body works, and for me, these are just results that I've not seen other Treatment approaches get. I've not seen myself get using other treatment approaches. And I was doing, I mean, I went for my physical therapy background is osteopathic. I went to an osteopathic physical therapy school. So I came out with the equivalent of basically six con ed courses. So I was doing manual therapy a ton and not getting nearly the results I was, I've been getting now no. with post-restoration. What,
0: what, I, what I was basically shocked about, you know, cause I'm a manual therapist, just yeah. like you were. And yeah. I'm very orthopedic, very biomechanical um, training. And it's, there is some touching, but it's just to sure. kind of guide the ribs and guide the, the, the patient to be able to activate certain areas, but it's, it's not to push or move or stretch Right. manually so that it's a passive, it's all active for the patient. Yep. Yep. So I
1: get it, them to figure out how can I accomplish this task? Yeah. You know, it's really the big thing that we're looking at is, you know, back to this diaphragm conversation is, is the left diaphragm is, is thinner. It's three times thinner. It's smaller. It's central tendon is much smaller than the right side. The right diaphragm is stronger and bigger, bigger and functions easier the right diaphragm has a, has a liver underneath it, which maintains its dome-shaped easier. The crus the crua of the diaphragm, the right crus is lower, goes down to L4, and it's bigger. The left one is only down to L2, and it's thinner and smaller, so the left diaphragm is, is always disadvantaged mechanically. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you look at research that talks about people who are, let's say, missing a lung, what you'll find is there's some com- compensatory strategies that happen. So a lot of times what happens is people don't really inflate their right lung, as well as they inflate the left lung because of this diaphragm asymmetry. What that does then is puts the center of mass onto the right side. So a lot of times in period, what we're trying to do is we're trying to give the left diaphragm the help it needs to get into the right shape and the right leverage to then allow the body to shift and alternate on the left side. Because if the left diaphragm doesn't act like a respirator and putting air into the right lung, and inflate the right lung, it's very difficult to then shift the center of mass on the left side. So the thing that I'm really interested in is alternating diaphragm activity because the diaphragm doesn't really function at the same way on both sides at the same time. It depends on which side you're shifted on. That depends on, that then dictates which diaphragm is working harder. So my goal so, is to have yeah. an alternating diaphragm function.
0: This also leads into the oscillating movement throughout the body, right? So you you want the right and the left diaphragm moving, but that also it's, it's attached to all the rib cage, the shoulders, the, the pelvis. And so, you know, we always look at gait, every patient comes through, we look at their gait and a lot of them don't move their right arm. For example, like their right arm is kind of attached to their body, a little stiffer, the left arm might swing. And, and it changes how their whole body system works together. Can you explain what, what that means to you? When, when one arm doesn't move and, and, and how, like, I want everybody that's listening to this podcast to understand your arm should swing both equally both sides. So that changes the way your body oscillates right and left. Correct. Can you elaborate yeah. a little bit on that?
1: Sure. So, you'll see a lot, like if you start looking at people and how they walk, what you'll see is a very, very common presentation, which is the left shoulder is where arm swing generates from. So you see a shoulder based arm swing, but the right shoulder doesn't really move. And so you'll see a right elbow flexion and left shoulder flexion. So that means that their right humerus doesn't really move away from the body very well. What that does by pinning your humerus against your side, it basically pulls you to the right and keeps you centered on your right foot, on your right heel, on your right pelvis, on your right diaphragm, which then has an implication to your neck and airway, for sure, and your mandible and your teeth and your breathing and your cranium, all the way up to your, your ability to use your eyes for visual field perception all the way up. Because now what your body does is recalculates what you do the most commonly, your brain recalculates to your version of normal. So as you're in this position, your brain does the math, oh, This is where we are most of the time, normal. Well, no, no brain, that's just common. Okay, so now that's part of the reason why it's so challenging for a lot of people. Once we start introducing the other methods is because the brain's like, that's not normal. Oh no, it is, it's just not common for you. For you, right. But this right arm, if you don't have a right arm swing, the whole role of arm swing is to generate a momentum that allows your body to move in a fluid manner through space. So if you, when your right arm moves forward, the whole point of the right arm through shoulder flexion moving forward is to allow your sternum to turn left and your center of gravity to shift on your left leg. Well, if your brain has no interest in shifting to the left, I'm gonna glue my right arm to my side so I never go left correctly anyway. I'll go left, but I'll use my left leg like a kickstand, not as a, something I can stand on and be reliable.
0: Right.
1: That's what happens when the right arm comes against the side. So yeah, one of the big things we work on is, let's make sure that we have the rib cage on the left side that moves, complemented by a right arm swing. So I wish I had this research with me, but there's two research articles, and one of them was looking, there's not a ton of, first of all, there's not a ton of research that talks about ribcage, scapular, humor mechanics during walking. I found like a dozen. There's not a lot, okay, but one of the research articles said in the 952 people we looked at, the right arm swing was virtually none in all of them. So as a result, we're going to call not using your right arm as human normal. Oh, boy. No, no, no. That's just common. Right. You see it all the time. It doesn't make it normal. It just means it's common. But they, they're, what they're, they're, they're like, we should change our concept of the gait cycle to have the left arm swing be bigger than the right one because that's apparently what everyone is doing anyway.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: And our point of PRI is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's common, but that's not normal. And the reason why it's not normal is because your rib cage doesn't work. Right. Research article number two looked at over a thousand cadavers. What they found was that the, the, the plane, the angle plane of the, of the facet joints was offset above T10, interesting, to have there be facilitating more left upper trunk rotation. No. Well, yeah, Wolf's Law would dictate that if you are constantly shifted to the left, which means you have to get left trunk rotation to turn to look straight ahead your facet joints will reorient in the sagittal, in the frontal plane sagittal plane to orient yourself so that they have to open up because otherwise, if you're just going to the right and turning to the right at your pelvis, you will look to the right. You have to reorient your thoracic spine and turn your rib cage, right rib cage internal, left rib cage external, crank your rib cage. To, now your rib cage is twisted. Your spine is twisted just to look straight ahead. And that is your new normal.
0: I and see. this researcher
1: said, this researcher said Well, that must be how all humans are, because our over a thousand cadaver research shows that this angular change of facet joint orientation must be the human normal. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No, no, no. That's human common based on these patterns of respiration. It's not normal. It's just common. So these two research articles completely support what Priory has been talking about. It's just that they're not looking at it from the same lens we are, but we're like, we completely agree. Let's fix that.
0: Okay. I, I totally see what you're saying. So we're, we're basically shifted over to the right because of how we breathe and we yeah. avoid the left side and our spine is adapting to it. Yeah. So if, if you we're going to, we're going to wrap it up soon. Um, I just wanted to give you one, one thing, because if you had, if you were talking to the public and said, you know, what are, what are the few things that you could say would, be good things for you to practice in general without seeing a PRI therapist, just what, just advice for the human body to be healthy. What would you say? A few things.
1: Yeah. Number one would be reach with your arms. Like your arms have to go forward. Now the reason that that's a big deal is as your arms go forward, it's much easier than for your rib cage to go backwards. So really when all the we do a ton of reaching in PRI, right? So the reason why we're reaching is not really for your arms to go forward, but to promote, Rib cage to go backwards because what that does is allows T8 to go backwards. Well, there's your freedom. So when T8 comes backwards, that then allows the other segments above and below T8, which all the way up to your your skull and all the way down to your sacrum, to have more freedom of motion because now we have induced a neutral spinal position. So the number one thing I would say would be reaching. Okay, make sure your arms go forward so that your rib cage can come backwards. That'd be number one. Number two would be. Make sure that you have the ability to shift your weight on your left leg. Now, that's a, that's a double-edged sword because just to tell somebody who doesn't really have the mechanical wherewithal or the respiration mechanics to be able to shift your weight on their left leg, they will do it wrong. But if we can get people just to be aware that if you just put your weight on your left heel when you're standing, not that your toes are up, your foot's flat but you've just shifted your weight over so you can kind of feel like you have weight on your left heel. That is a huge change of pace for your body. What you'll experience is your left leg will get tired. It'll be not hard. It'll be somewhat stiff to breathe in. Your your body's not going to like it. Your body will be like, this is too weird. This can't be right. I don't like how this feels because it's just such a foreign concept. So those would be the two things would be reaching forward. So your rib cage can go backwards and then stay there and just appreciate that feeling. And number two, shift your weight so you can tell your weight is on your left heel. And those two things would go a long way as to really helping people get out of the pattern that they're in, um, which is just a change of pace.
0: Thank you, Dan. This has been a very enlightening conversation around the body and uh, breathing and posture. Uh, I really appreciate your time and your expertise. It's been a pleasure working with you. And um, I know you're helping lots and lots of people improve these full body um, posture and breathing issues. So thank you so much. And um, we will be in touch. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to The Breathing Lab with Dr. Jenny.